1: This is the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hugh Hefner's impact on society, certainly on the the lifestyle in North America in the 60s and from the 60s on forward was considerable. In the 50s as well, I suppose to because that's when the initial Playboy magazine was published in the 1950s with the first centerfold being Marilyn Monroe and and I think it was Marilyn Monroe. And uh, subsequently, of course, Playboy magazine became the subject of a great deal of conversation and discussion, debate. And uh, I remember, as a high school kid, uh, you know, my classmates would bring in uh, a Playboy magazine that they'd, I guess, gotten from their dads, and uh, everybody would gather around and we'd read the articles. I was—it was, was always—it was a great—it was such a tremendous fascination with Playboy magazine because it, it represented such a change in anything people were accustomed to. Dr. B- Bob Thompson, Robert Thompson, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the uh, Chorus Radio Network. He's the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at the University of Syracuse, and he's one of the world's leaders on the issue of pop culture. Bob, thank you for taking the time, and did I even semi-coherently explain what Hugh Hefner accomplished uh, in, in the 50s and then going forward in the 60s and, and particularly the 70s and into the
2: 80s. Yeah, you did. I mean, he was a major force in uh, the culture for the last half of the uh, 20th century, and some of it good. Uh, uh, Civil rights, the First Amendment, uh, uh, one of the cable networks was just doing a uh, big thing about he uh, gave Dick Gregory, the uh, uh, recently um, deceased black comic, one of his first breaks. Uh, He had lots of uh, integration of his uh, entertainment uh, uh, at his clubs. And of course, that magazine um, published some extraordinarily good fiction and really important interviews. Martin Luther King, as early as 1965, right. um, the list of uh, uh, great writers is uh, take us all day to a uh, uh, list, including women, uh, uh, um, Nadine Gortimer, Joyce Carol Oates, Margaret Atwood. Um, but we can never forget that when you turned the page from one of those interviews, you turned the page from some of that fiction. You saw pictures of naked women, and after Dick Gregory uh, uh, or Bill Cosby got finished performing at the Playboy Club, you would be served by a Playboy bunny. And by the way, the bodies of those people in the magazine and the bunnies that were serving you your drinks were all pretty much the same kind of body. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and tell me this, do men who are of a certain vintage, who were kids or in their mid-teens when Playboy magazine really hit its stride in the late 50s and early 60s, is there still a degree of embarrassment or reluctance to talk about it? Because it it, it was something, it was a magazine everybody wanted to to have uh, if you were that age, but nobody really wanted to admit to having
2: i don't well, know if i'm even telling my the truth. own personal <laughs> experience with the magazine i was born in 1959 yeah. i did not have a father who uh, had them in the house so i never uh, uh, saw the magazine except i did of course see the covers they were very prominently displayed in uh, uh, very polite uh, you know grocery stores uh, uh, and all that kind of thing so i never saw that magazine at first because uh... i didn't uh, have the opportunity to do so as a kid and then as i became an adult uh... yeah I, I was uh... i didn't want to buy it uh... uh... because there was a sense that you were supporting something that you thought was uh... uh... uh was not good i needed when i was doing some research on uh, hill street blues for one of my books playboy magazine did a spectacular interview with the entire cast of that um... series uh... so i went to northwestern university's library and had to sign a whole bunch of different things to finally get uh... the opportunity to um, uh... to look at that and I will say, with all honesty, I actually checked out that uh, uh, magazine, Xeroxed that interview, and then uh, uh, and then returned it. And then, oh, one more I just remembered. <clears throat> Remember um, Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? Yes. Darva Conger, a big controversy about that, uh, shortly after that happened, did an interview, uh, uh, or not an interview, she did a, a, a pictorial with Playboy and I was doing a lot of research about that show and talking a lot about it and I felt it was that I needed to see that and I didn't want to go into a convenience store to buy it so I actually got one of my colleagues to go get it for me (laughs)
0: yeah because I was just thinking as I that
2: answers your question
0: well I think so because after I asked my question I realized I was actually in contradiction with myself because I remember when uh, if I go back to grade 8 grade 9 grade 10 and one of the guys in class Would bring in a copy of Playboy magazine, and in the day of the internet, where you can see pretty much anything you want to see just by turning your phone on, it wasn't like that in those days. So some kid would bring in. No, some kid would bring in Playboy magazine, and a group of guys would 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 gather around, and another group of guys refused to look at the magazine. So,
2: and that may tell you a whole lot about the legacy of. Hugh Hefner. He did a lot of important things, and we've talked about those uh, a little bit already, but the fact that you had a bunch of kids gathered around looking at uh, pictures of naked women, which is kind of the epitome of uh, objectifying women, and I've heard his argument that he was trying to get us away from our Puritan uh, attitudes about sex, and he was trying to uh, demonstrate that women could enjoy sex as much as men do, and those are all um, uh, fine arguments, but there is something a little bit creepy about all those guys gathering around to look at those pictures, and you have to admire the ones who, uh, you know, who decided not to. Because among those who decided not to were probably several who would have been more than happy to do so.
0: I think you're right. Now, did the magazine represent Hugh Hefner, or was it a, a tool that he used to, to further his f- entire empire? And, and, the, and the life that he built for himself, and the aura and the image that he created.
2: Well, the magazine was certainly the mothership from which he then launched sorties into all other parts of the culture, sort of like Oprah Winfrey used her daily television show as the kind of central identity, and then she went on to do the magazines and the radio and the, uh, the online stuff and all the other things uh, that she did. That magazine was certainly the identity of that uh, brand before we were even using that word uh, all that much. Uh, but then, of course, he did go on to have the chain of uh, 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 clubs where you'd go for uh, live entertainment, and he had a TV presence. He had mm-hmm. a TV show called Playboy After Dark in the, well, it was in the '60s, I think, and maybe into the '70s. Um, uh, and he would do uh, uh, cameos on uh, uh, things right up to toward the end of his life. He did The Simpsons and Curb Your Enthusiasm and Sex in the City. I do think, though, he kind of outlived his... He represented a certain kind of urban cosmopolitan cool in the magazine and the clubs and all the rest of it. The smoking jacket, the pipe in one hand, the cocktails, and all that kind of thing. Um He lived long enough, though, for that to become almost a parody. If somebody walked up to one of my students today in a smoking jacket (laughs) with a pipe uh, and a cocktail, their response would not be, oh, how cool this guy is, but their response would be to burst out laughing. Um, And uh, I think we really saw that when he did The Girls Next Door, the reality TV show, which went from 2005 to 2010. And by that time, he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, far along um, uh, in age and yet still, you know, playing this whole Hefner, uh, you know, sexy pajamas kind of thing. And I think in many ways, like so many reality TV shows, that had become more a punchline than it was his original brand.
0: Without Hugh Hefner, does our society develop differently, significantly differently uh, from 1950 to 1980?
2: I don't know. I mean, uh, everything would be a little different, I suppose, Uh, but uh, I'm not sure in any really significant uh, uh, sorts of ways. Uh, The sexual revolution would have happened anyway without uh, uh, Hugh Hefner. Feminism and uh, 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 feminist response to pornography, all of that stuff would have, uh, 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 would have happened anyway. Um, I think maybe the birth control pill, which starts, what, about 1959, somewhere around there. I'm not sure when it was approved and developed and all that, but somewhere around the turn of that decade. Uh, I think that probably in the end had a more significant impact, but we don't want to understate Hefner. He did really kind of bring out that idea of lifestyle before we were using uh, that word, and it was a lifestyle very much based on luxury and good taste and consumerism and all of that kind of thing and it's not like Hefner invented that in america it was well established by that time but he certainly continued to promote and uh um
1: and celebrate it you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml
0: with me talking about uh hugh hefner who passed away at the age of 91 earlier in the week Professor Robert Thompson, the director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the University of Syracuse, and the author of television's Second Golden Age, From Hill Street Blues to ER. Uh, Bob, let's have a listen for a few seconds here to what Hugh Hefner had to say about his growing up years. I
3: was raised in a very Puritan home, a prohibitionist home, a very repressive home, a home in which... Uh, there was not a lot, a lot of hugging and kissing. Uh, the Playboy philosophy is, makes a case for life as a celebration. with The suggestion that there is more to life than simply a bale of tears. That life should be lived with a little style. Uh, and you can do that if you are wealthy or if you are working on relatively lesser means. I think it, more,
2: it has to do with attitude on life.
0: That reminds me, and I want to get to the fiction pieces in a second, but that reminds me of whenever I hear Hefner interviewed, I never had the chance to do that myself, but I I was never quite sure of what he was talking about.
2: (laughs) You know, it was... Yeah, well, (laughs) I have no problem with that idea that life shouldn't be just a veil of tears. I completely subscribe to that. Um, The jump between a... Uh, a family that nobody hugs each other uh, uh, to a uh, a life where you celebrate life and don't have a veil of tears um, by means of putting naked women in magazines for everybody to oogle at. That's the step I don't quite get.
0: No, no, there was something strange about his his way of speaking. I, I was never sure whether he was just trying to use words that were impressive but didn't quite connect, or whether I just wasn't paying close attention. But the magazine did have some tremendous fiction pieces, and you and I talked the other day about one in particular, and the, the the story was dual, and it was the story of a truck driver, who tries to kill a traveling salesman who was driving a little nondescript. Uh, car, and I remember that reading it that. It was Valiant, yeah. I remember reading that. It was just an incredibly gripping story, and it turned out to be a film eventually for television. And who directed it?
2: None other than Spielber- Steven Spielberg. He directed a couple of TV episodes before, but that was the first film he ever directed. It was made for television. It was an ABC right. Movie of the Week, but it was his first uh, uh, film length show.
0: What about that particular film that that particular story it became well, I have to say a piece well, of pop I culture it, didn't it, it
2: Yeah it played in 19, November of 1971 Richard Matheson published the the uh, story in April of 71 mm-hmm. and the story goes that Spielberg's secretary uh, and at that point in his career I'm surprised he had a secretary so I'm not sure how accurate this story is but apparently she saw the story uh and gave it to Spielberg. But the fact that it was released in November of eighty one, aired on ABC in November of eighty one, the Matheson story was in the April uh I'm sorry, seventy one. The Matheson story was in the April seventy one issue of Playboy, which might have come out in late February or March. That meant that whole thing happened pretty quickly. But uh I had never read the story, but I do remember I would have been about eleven years old um when that ABC movie of the week played and that was one of the most um, uh, compelling experiences I had ever had watching television.
0: I remember the, the reading the story and being gripped by the story and then being so uh, keenly interested in the film when I found out about it. I was working the night that it showed on television, but then they replayed it about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I just worked until midnight, but I stayed up to watch that film and I'm not sorry that I did. And I asked you a question which is still circulating. Did we ever get to see the driver of the truck? And a lot of people think that it was one of the men who was sitting at the counter of the diner, but you say no.
2: Well, there, there is a the, the truck, uh, uh, the truck and uh, uh, the Plymouth end up at this same gas station, um, and there's a diner. And uh, we we see uh, the driver of the Plymouth uh, uh, you know, looking around and trying to speculate which one of it is. He actually goes up and yells at one of them. Um, but as he's yelling at one of them, uh, the truck drives away. So it's clearly not that one. So I'd have to go back and look at it again. But I don't think it's ever revealed for sure who it actually is that is driving. We never see... Uh, a person, I think, leave the diner, go to the truck, and drive it away. Um, uh, you know, with uh, there, there's never a string of evidence uh, for that. No, I don't the, think
0: the driver of the Valiant was Dennis
2: Weaver. Right.
0: I was His thinking. Was I was thinking Man. as well earlier today. This that would be the kind of film where, if somebody wanted to today, they could turn it into a really great movie for the big screen
2: they could but you know i think one of the things that's an interesting point cuz you could remake that now with a huge budget and you could do extraordinary things with the truck and everything but i think the very fact that this was a young director his first movie um, uh it was done on a low budget abc was churning out uh uh the tuesday movie of the week and the third uh, thursday movie of the week and then they added a wednesday so they were really churning these things out and I think it part of it was that it was low budget that made it so compelling. I mean, this thing was just the almost the entire movie were you know were people out in the middle of nowhere in two vehicles, and it required a really brilliant director to make that. As a, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember I was uh, on the seat of uh, uh, my pants when I was watching, <laughs> or the edge of the chair. I should. Yeah. Say.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. The uh, um, 91st year, um, and that's when Hugh Hefner died, at age 91, just a few days ago. Quite a legacy, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again.
2: It's always so much fun to talk to you, Roy.
0: All the best. Dr. Robert Thompson from the University of Syracuse, pop culture expert, the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular
1: Culture. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Chronic pain. Chronic pain. Chronic agony. You've heard the pain patients on this program. You've heard them talk about what they're going through, what their experiences are. You've heard them talk about being afraid of having their opioid medications withdrawn completely or dramatically cut by doctors, they tell us, who are simply afraid of the governing bodies. The governing bodies that threaten the licenses of medical doctors. And so patients find themselves either without the opioid medication which has helped them gain some quality of life over a period of years, or they have a dramatic reduction which really doesn't provide them with the kind of relief they need on a day-to-day basis. I've read you some emails And most recently, I've received a lot of emails from the United States, from American patients, who write about being on the brink of committing suicide because their opioids have been withdrawn completely and they can no longer live with the pain. You heard me speak with the uh, wife and the daughter of a 53-year-old man from Vermont who, in fact, did take his life after several doctors just ran him through the mill and he eventually wound up with no opioid pain medication whatsoever, and the pain that he was experiencing from the various serious illnesses that he had was just not something he could live with any longer. And tomorrow pharmacists in the province of Alberta will start to question chronic pain patients who arrive with an opioid prescription about their pain, about their prescription, about their relationship with the doctor, And if the pharmacist is not particularly impressed with the prescription the doctor has written, then the pharmacist will have the option to contact the doctor and quiz the doctor about the prescription. We spoke last weekend with a registrar of the Alberta College of Pharmacists. I'll play that back for you tomorrow because, again, tomorrow is when the program begins in the province of Alberta. Other provinces will follow suit. It's all already happening in the United States, and a very large drugstore chain in the U.S., CVS, has made the decision, and we'll talk to somebody about that issue tomorrow from the U.S., but as I understand it, CVS has decided that if they don't like what they see, as far as the prescription is concerned, they will not fill it, or they will not fill it for more than seven days. There are millions of people in North America. The guesstimate or the estimate is one in a, maybe 111 million people in the United States, millions in Canada who are living with chronic pain and they're going through hell. Dr. Len Webster is the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. He's the author of The Painful Truth. It's also available in film online. He joins us uh, from Salt Lake City in Utah. Dr. Webster, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, good to be with you Roy, thank you. Also with us Dr. Gaylord Wardell, who's an anesthe- anesthesiologist and pain specialist in Medicine at H- H- Alberta. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Wardell on a couple of occasions, and Dr. Wardell, it's great to have you on the program, and please tell us what your sense Let's Let me start with you. What is it that the chronic pain patients are experiencing now that they should not be experiencing when it comes to their being restricted in obtaining the medications they require?
3: Thanks very much, and I'd, I'd like to say uh, hello to Dr. Webster, who has been a a very honored member of the pain fraternity for many years. It's a, it's a real honor to be on the show with uh, someone of his uh, caliber. But let me go back and, and say that this has gone on for a long time. Really, the war on drugs in the United States got started a long time ago. And of course, in Canada, we always follow suit from the United States. The old saying that when uh, the United States gets a cold, we get pneumonia has always followed. But in in reality, one of the real issues is that for many years, we realized that patients were being very poorly treated for chronic pain. And back in the 1980s, it became aware that opioids could be used quite safely in chronic pain patients, provided there were safeguards put in place and the patients were carefully followed. Unfortunately, the war on drugs ramped up, and sadly, Most of the decisions that have been made that are affecting the vast majority of chronic pain patients who, in my personal view, having looked at these patients for 30 years and having treated so many of them, that there are almost none of them who suffer from the disease of addiction. So very few of those patients really have addiction and very few of them really have problem with the drugs. But in society, there is seen to be a massive problem with these drugs. Uh, Dramatic increase in opioid overdose deaths, many of those linked to prescription opioids. But in reality, they still remain a tiny, a tiny proportion of the patients who use opioids for chronic pain. So what has really happened in essence is that the opioid chronic pain patient has become the low-hanging fruit in the war against drugs. So these patients are in fact treated like criminals. They are actually stigmatized as being opioid users and virtually every single patient of mine. And in my practice, I have around 300 patients who use opioids for chronic non-cancer pain, almost none of them whom have a problem with those drugs in the sense of abuse, addiction, or diversion. But they're virtually always treated as criminals. So what we're seeing is these patients, and this happens because, now I'm sure Dr. Webster has a far better insight on this, but this happens in my view because this whole process is being run largely by policing agencies, government agencies, who are responsible for responding in a knee-jerk fashion to a problem in society, and addictionologists, who are the ones who seem to be the loudest, uh, they're the loudest speakers in this in this issue. And I'll give you a very good example. Doctor Webster created a, a wonderful document that we use as a screening tool called the Opioid Risk Tool. Now, I use that on every single patient that I see, and I hear a lot of doctors when I do when I do talks say, "Oh, well." Obviously, you're you're obviously thinking that these opioids are a serious cause for for addiction, so therefore you're using these risk tools on these patients. But yet, if I give a patient an anti-inflammatory and ask them questions about their GI tract and their kidney function and their hypertension and their cardiovascular status, nobody says, oh, these are dangerous drugs. This is simply the way we look at the risk. When I use Dr. Webster's opioid risk tool, my patients invariably say, wow, I had no idea that some of these things, that adverse life experiences that have happened to me may increase my risk for chronic pain. But in the end here, I think what's happening as you pointed out, we have this interesting event happening in Alberta. And one of the big problems with this is that, number one, these patients are not well-known by the pharmacists number 2 pharmacists like doctors have virtually no education in chronic pain and and number 3 almost never are these these patients these pharmacists that are going to be scrutinized scrutinizing their patients are on the team that's actually treating the patients so in in summary uh right i think the real problem here is that legitimate pain patients are being stigmatized as criminals Without the forethought that went into when, for instance, the uh, transportation folks realized that we had to screen people for risk on airliners, if we'd have taken that kind of thought and introduced the screening processes, with that kind of concern for how this is going to be taken by the patients, we might have a better situation. Because in reality, and, and I really am quite sure that Dr. Webster will confirm this, there are virtually no patients. Who take opioids the way they're prescribed, who have serious problems with them in terms of the numbers we are given to believe exist by the press, governments, and particularly medical licensing agencies.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, LynnWebsterMD.com is the website of Dr. Lynn Webster. Dr. Webster, what is going on? in the United States, as far as pain patients are concerned, chronic pain patients are concerned, how far has this this um, attack on pain patients progressed? And, and what's the objective here? Because we're hearing that more and more pain patients are so desperate that they're actually not only considering suicide, but committing suicide. Yeah.
4: Yeah, first I, I want to say hello to Dr. Wardell and and indicate that everything that you said is uh, spot on. You've done a great job of providing um, an, uh, a summary of uh, really the situation that's out there. Yeah, you, and you're right. Um, I, I think that most of the most of the physicians know that we've gone through cycles, um, and right now uh, we are. Uh, the pendulum is swinging so far to uh, the opposite direction that we were in during the 90s and the first part of the century when um, probably there was a lot of opioids prescribed that should not have been prescribed um, and that they they became diverted. But for the most part, that's not with the people in chronic pain. It would have been uh, maybe post-op dental emergency room where there were a number of medications that were diverted Um, And then they were used by people who wanted to abuse them, and that's led to a big uh, problem. And when we look at the statistics, we see most of the harm uh, is occurring with people that are using illegal opioids uh, like heroin or the synthetic fentanyls or prescription opioids that have not been prescribed to them. But it's easy to focus on physicians, and it's easy – it it seems easy – to ignore people in pain um, because the loudest voices are those who have suffered from the tragedies of addiction and, and overdoses and we cannot discount the seriousness of that problem but we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't ignore the people with chronic non-malignant pain or even cancer pain either. So uh, it, it is our inability to find a balance in trying to solve a problem. With drugs that are dangerous, whether they're NSAIDs, as Dr. Wardell had just uh, indicated, those are dangerous as well, maybe just as dangerous as opioids. But there's a cultural, um, there's a, a there's a cultural thing that's been embedded that is anti-opioid um, beyond just the harm that they create. There is a stigma associated with opioids, the people who use opioids, um, that that's basically hundred years old where mostly minorities in inner cities would be uh, abusing the drugs. And that, I think, has continued for a century. And today, when we start to use them for the treatment of, of, of pain, um, people who are using them are castigated, and they're thought of as lowlifes and druggies. And that's unfortunate.
0: Dr. Bordell, what pain patients in this country want to hear is that there are doctors who will actually prescribe the opioids that they require, not tell them to go elsewhere, not tell them they're being cut back, not tell them they're so afraid of their colleges that uh, they're afraid of losing their licenses, so we won't do anything for you. We also have heard more and more that there are physicians leaving the pain management field entirely because of the pressure that's applied. What's the message to the pain patient who says, help?
3: Well, that's a a very difficult situation because it really has to do with exactly what uh, Dr. Webster talked about, balance. Obviously, harm reduction is a big issue, but unfortunately, harm reduction is not the only issue. And, And I can assure you that everything you said is correct. There are many, many family physicians who now will no longer prescribe opioids, there are also uh, many family physicians who now feel that it is an absolute requirement that they reduce the opioid doses that their patients are on. And I don't think right now for the pain patient, there's any possible way that we can reassure them that this isn't going to get considerably worse. First of all, and there's no one knows this better than Dr. Webster because he's worked so hard to try and enhance pain education uh, in medical schools. As you know, when the Institutes of Medicine released their huge and, and really a tremendous document uh, about pain in America, they indicated that out of the 117, 115 or so accredited medical schools in North America, less than 10 of them had a credit course for Pain, where a patient actually, or a person, a, a student actually had to write an exam explaining that they understood something from the course. Secondly, there's very poor understanding about pain in general. Most people in the public and most people in the profession believe that it is absolutely necessary to have active tissue injury or active tissue damage in order to have pain. The concept of neuropathic pain, or in other words, pain being caused by damage to the nervous system, has not been accepted by the medical profession. It has not been accepted by the patients. It's one small group of patients I understand out there who understand this extremely well, and those are the phantom limb patients, they always laugh when I talk to them about neuropathic pain and how you can have pain without having anything obviously wrong. Even in the orthopedic world, there's a a famous orthopedic surgeon from England by the name of Gordon Waddle, who some years ago was concerned by the fact that many patients appeared not to have anything organically wrong with them and had pain, so he created a series of uh, rules that would have led an orthopedic surgeon der- determine that the patient had non-organic pain. Now, by non-organic pain, by and large, if you talk to any uh, litigation lawyers in the states and in canada who've done a lot of insurance and compensation work they'll often refer to being waddled in court because this the waddle signs were brought up in court but what they are if you look at these signs very carefully
1: you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml
0: barry ulmer the executive director of the chronic pain association of canada told us on air a couple of weeks ago that RCMP officers have entered doctors' uh, offices to review files of patients. Let me just read you uh, two lines from a patient, pain patient in Texas. As I said, I get so many emails from the United States, as well as Canada now, from pain patients. We don't take these meds to get high, as drug addicts do. We take these medications to survive our pain, and to function in our daily lives. Many of us still live with severe to excruciating pain, even with opioids. Dr. Lynn Webster, past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the author of The Painful Truth. Dr. Gaylord Wardell, anesthesiologist and pain specialist in medicine at Alberta. They're my guests. Uh, Dr. Webster, when Dr. Wardell says he's afraid things are going to get worse before they get better, uh, and, and I know that tomorrow, for example, in Alberta, that uh, pharmacists will begin to quiz pain patients on their specific pain and on their medications. Do you uh, do you agree with the assessment that things are going to get better or worse before they get better? And, and how much worse is it going to get?
4: Well, I hope not. But... Uh... It is. It is not. A, it is not a pretty picture out there now. Because, as you alluded to uh, early in the show, we have large pharmacy chains that are limiting the amount of medicine that uh, patients will get, even with a doctor's prescription. So they're overriding what the doctors um, are uh, prescribing, and the the, the political environment. Um, with the U.S. President's uh, Opioid Commission and uh, the senators and congressmen almost daily. Uh, there are dozens of topics about the harm of opioids. Rarely, rarely is there an article about um, people in pain and what this um, uh, what this campaign is doing for people in pain. So I think that uh, uh I'm afraid that there are more and more physicians that are going to stop seeing people in pain. Uh, I, like you, we receive a number of emails uh, across the country uh, from people asking for help, asking me to give them a name of a, a doctor in their area that might be willing to see them. But even if I can do that, all of the physicians are quite concerned that the regulatory bodies, whether it's the state medical boards or the DEA in the U.S. or something comparable in Canada, is um, going to take their livelihood away, if not even uh, uh, imprison them. So uh, there's there's a lot of fear, um, both by physicians and by patients, that we have not hit the bottom.
0: And Dr. Wardell, some doctors, perhaps more doctors than we know of, have had their prescribing, their, their narcotic prescribing privileges removed.
3: Well, in, in Alberta, of course, uh, with the triplicate prescription program and a reasonable amount of transparency at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta, uh, we can actually find out. And actually, there have been very, very small numbers. But in reality, what is much more important, is the implied threat. Actually, there have been very few doctors in Alberta had their prescribing rights taken away, but patients uh, have often been told by their doctor that the college tells them they can no longer prescribe opioids when it's simply based on the new April guidelines and and what they're saying is that they could have their license taken away if they don't. Doctors are terrified. I don't think that's I don't think that's an understatement at all. Yeah. And of course, for most doctors, opioid prescribed patients are a very tiny portion of their livelihood. So it's pretty easy to cut them loose. L- let but me actually, ask you. Let me ask
0: you this. And we've spoken with the Professor Jason Boussa on this program on a number of occasions, the editor of the guidelines, and he continues to insist that there should not be a dramatic drop in the opioid prescriptions, that it should be done very slowly, very carefully, and with the patient's cooperation. Obviously, the colleges, medical colleges, don't see this quite that way. But what? So, I mean, what does the pain patient have to look forward to? If, if you can't get the, what you're required to, I'm going to come back to this point, if you can't get what you need to control your pain make your life livable, and now the pharmacies are getting engaged and we have the Alberta College of Pharmacists writing their own guidelines with nobody asking them to, and the registrar admitted that to me last weekend, what, what now? What, what's, the, what's the advice to the pain patient who's listening to this program and says, I need help?
3: Tra- tragically, uh, the, the, the biggest problem is, is, is education, and you can't treat what you can't see. Almost every patient that I see, and I, I'm sure that Dr. Webster's patients will say the same thing, they will say, nobody really believes I have the pain. Now, it's not that they probably say they don't believe it, but in terms of validation, you have to recognize that the patient has a legitimate reason for having pain. And the vast majority of doctors in Canada, and I don't know about the situation in the United States, I go to a lot of American meetings and I kind of hear the same things, but I'm sure Dr. Webster has a better finger on this pulse. Very few doctors understand the idea that you do not have to have tissue damage to have pain, that in chronic pain there's very little correlation between the health of the tissues and the pain that the patient experiences, and the pain is absolutely real there is virtually no such animal as imaginary pain. I've done palliative care for 30 years, and I can tell you that suffocation is the worst experience that people feel. Pain is number two, and when a patient is dying and they get suffocation, their pain might be extinguished by that. So if a patient comes into the doctor and the doctor says, "Why well, you must be making this up, or they imply they're making it up by saying, oh, the x-rays look normal, the MRI looks normal, or oh, I've had a broken leg and it's never felt like this. Those are Euphemisms for I don't believe you have pain. If pain was imaginary, if people were imagining the second most harmful experience they could imagine, they would simply imagine it to go away. And they can't. There's no such thing as imaginary pain. I have, to,
0: I guess, I have to guess. Understand that, understand I, have that, that, I have to guess that. I have to guess, Doctor Wardell. Know. I have to guess that you and Doctor Webster know this. Thousands of other physicians know this. Why don't doctors then, as a group, as a, as a, as a large group, of caring individuals? Swallow the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Why don't doctors, Doctors as a large group, defy the the colleges?
3: The Hippocratic Oath doesn't say first do no harm. It says first do no intended harm. And that is a terrible misuse of the Hippocratic Oath that many doctors have done, many politicians have done. It's sad, and actually, I don't agree that there are many many doctors who agree with Doctor Webster and I. I think there are many doctors who are politically correct enough to know that they should say that. No, no, I didn't but say they agree they with money.
0: you. I, I said that they know what they know. What you're saying is to be true. So why don't doctors on mass just battle their colleges or their governing bodies in the interest of taking care of the patient? Money.
4: Roy, right. I, think, I, I think Dr. Wardell is, is correct that, frankly, I think that there are many physicians who, who really doubt the need to treat a lot of pain and because they don't understand it. It gets back to the, what you were saying earlier, um, that w- we we're not taught in a medical school or in our residency training programs about pain other than it is a symptom rather than the disease it becomes. Um, and, and that lack of training is parallel to the lack of knowing how to treat it then mm-hmm. because each one of the different pain types may require a different approach to be optimal. So I think there is a there is clearly uh, a large number of physicians who are opposed to using opioids without offering a replacement that must be simply ignore the needs of people in pain. Otherwise I don't know how they could take that position.
0: All right, I have about a minute left. And I, I'm thankful that you that you two doctors care about the pain patients and stand up for the pain patients. What what's the logical step that should be taken? I mean I, I don't even know what the smart question is at this point, because I know what the right thing to do is. I just don't know why it's not being done. But what's the What's the step that has to be taken, Dr. Wardell?
3: Well, I, I'm completely in agreement with uh, with Dr. Webster. It has to be education, and education is a slow process. Mm-hmm.
0: So we leave it at that for this time, and I hope you'll both come back. Thank you, Roy. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you. And, and and Dr. Webster, it's just been a, a pleasure to, to actually hear your voice. I've, I've read your stuff for many years, and it's just uh,
0: delightful to hear your voice.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting you as well. Hopefully we get to
1: work together someday.
0: Dr. Thank Lynn you. Webster and Dr. Gaylord Wardell on The Roy Green Show.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: I first heard about Christian Saussure, I think it was maybe two years ago, and uh, the petty officer in the United States Navy was being charged for having taken six photographs from the inside of a submarine he was serving on, uh, I believe it was a nuclear submarine, but it was 40 years old, and uh, Christian Saussure was taking had taken the photographs, he said, to those mementos of his career, he has a stellar reputation and uh, history in the U.S. Navy, and yet he was convicted and he was sent to prison for a year. He's home now, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Christian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.
5: Well, thank you, Roy. Thank you for having me on your program.
0: How long were you in the Navy? Was it 11 years? And, and what did it mean to you to be a member of the United States
5: Navy? I was was extremely proud to be in the Navy, and I'm still proud of my service. You know, nothing they put on paper can change that. Um, But I joined the military after 9 11 because I wanted to make a difference and, um, you know, make the world a safer place. And that's what being in the Navy meant to me, you know.
0: There's been a lot said, a lot written, a lot supposed about what you did and why you did it. And I just uh, repeated what I've heard all along. But specifically, in your words, what were you doing and why did you do it? Well,
5: you know, I I don't want to make it sound like I'm making excuses for taking the pictures, but um, it was kind of a command environment at the time when a lot of people were doing the same thing, taking pictures, and none of us were doing it for nefarious purposes. We were all doing it because we were proud of what we did. And we wanted to be able to look back in the, in, in the future and say, hey, look, look what I did. You know, I, I took the pictures where I worked, which was in the engine room of a submarine. And of it was of things that were, you know, they, they couldn't use them to design another submarine based off of it. It was just things that I, I was proud of, you know. One of them was uh, of a treadmill because, you know, we had to work out in this tight space. and uh, But because the treadmill was in the engine room, they said, oh, well, it's classified. And they, they really latched onto this case um, because it allowed them to use it as a smoke screen for um, the Hillary Clinton issue where she was mishandling classified information and um, the Obama administration really just wanted to have somebody that they could say look we're, we're being tough on it and that's unfortunately what happened with me.
0: So you were the one who was selected to be charged and taken to court and you provided a smokescreen for Hillary Clinton?
5: Yes, I mean you know if they really wanted to charge me what they would have done was is charge me in a military court because I was still active duty in the military until I went to prison. Um, but they chose not to do that, and, and Lou went for the more high-profile civilian court where they could make a big show of it in the media, you know. And I, I pled guilty. I accepted responsibility. I didn't go to trial because what I did was wrong, and I, and I took responsibility for it. It wasn't done with nefarious purposes like they insinuated that I was some sort of a spy or something like that. It was done because I was proud of my country and of my job that I did.
0: And again, the photographs that you took were not of a classified uh, Part of the the SAB, I take it.
5: Well, they they were. It it was classified as confidential based off of um, what they said, which confidential is the lowest tier of classification in the U.S. uh, military classification. The stuff that, like Hillary Clinton, let's say, had on her server was top secret SCI, which is the highest um, of classification. So Confidential is said to the description is it will cause little to no national harm by disclosing this information.
0: And you did this for memorabilia sake, or just something that you could have later in life and look at what you've done in your career in the Navy. And you yeah. say that the others uh, on on board the sub did the same.
5: That's correct. Yes, in 2011, so right before my case became a big uh, issue, um, two members on my same command took pictures in the same area. And uh, it was handled the way that the Navy normally would, where it was handled at the lowest level possible by our command. The captain did what uh, is called non-judicial punishment, to fined them a couple hundred dollars, and they were allowed to move on with their Navy careers, you know, and both of them are still in the Navy and had really amazing careers. One of them even made officer. Uh, my case, unfortunately, got picked up by an overzealous prosecutor and FBI agents that... Uh, you know, wanted to make a name for themselves. And then, and, and really, no matter what the evidence persuaded them to, it, it didn't matter. They were going to make it into something it wasn't. What
0: did they charge you with?
5: Um, unlawful retention of national defense information, which is uh, basically saying that I, because I had a security clearance, I was allowed to possess it, but I possessed it on an unsecured device, which was my cell phone. Mm-hmm. So basically exactly what they could have charged Hillary Clinton with. So I was about to ask
0: you, what did they charge her with? I can't remember.
5: <laughs> Nothing. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, so it's a, it's a very big issue. You know, I, I think what most people, Americans and, and Canadians, should be concerned about is that we have a two-tier justice system, you know, in these countries where elites kind of do what they want, and uh, people like me who are honest, patriotic citizens um, are kind of thrown through the ringer, you know?
0: So you were in prison for a year. What was that like?
5: Uh, well, I wasn't in, like, you know, a really bad prison, I guess you could say. I was in a low-security um, But uh, it was a lot like being in the military in a lot of senses. Uh, You know, you you do what they tell you to do, and um, you don't cause any issues and and you make it through there. You know, the toughest part for me wasn't being in prison. It was while I was in prison, I was kind of helpless watching while my wife and my newborn daughter struggled. And, um, you know, we lost our vehicles, um, got repossessed, and our house went into foreclosure. And everything we'd really worked our lives to build kind of got taken away from us. And that was the toughest part for me.
0: Now, there's an opportunity for people to provide some financial support to you online, so tell um, us we about have a that.
5: website, www.helpchrissaucier.com, and my name's Chris spelled with a K. It's uh, K-R-I-S-S-A-U-C-I-E-R. And um, on there, there's a petition that we're trying to raise awareness um, so hopefully President Trump will uh, look at my case. And he's mentioned me quite a few times on the campaign trail that what happened to my family and I was wrong. And so if, if people go to that website, there is a place where they can help us out financially. Right now, I unfortunately can't work because I'm a house arrest um, for the next six months. But, uh, you know, so we're we're really hopeful that uh, President Trump will look at my case. And if we can raise awareness, that'd be amazing. And if people want to help us out, that'd be great too. And uh, so the website's www.helpchrissaucier.com.
0: And that's S-A-U-C-I-E-R. That's correct. And K-R-I-S. Yeah, it is. It is
5: saucier. You did pronounce it correctly. I, I just say saucier because it makes it a little bit easier right. for, for.
0: Well, it's the it's the French influence in Canada. Yes, yeah,
5: so that's right. I, my yeah. family is French Canadian. So.
0: Right. Chris, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you and catch up with you again. Who knows? Maybe Hillary Clinton will. Who knows?
5: Well, hopefully, my case can serve as a an example for you know what would happen to her or what should happen All right. to her. So. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be fine with her going to prison as well.
0: Chris, um, thanks thanks for the time today. We'll stay in touch.
5: Okay, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. bye
1: you are listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, story on uh, Global News
1: this week.
0: Audit of BC Mosque Charity alleges personal spending relationship with Qatar Group accused of supporting terror And then there was a follow-up story. Opposition wants government to look into B.C.'s charity links to the Cater Group. And reporting the story for Global News, Stuart Bell, National Investigative Journalist for Global News. Stuart, thank you for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. So uh, we have a charity operating a mosque in Port Coquitlam, a suburb of the city of Vancouver. What was the Islamic Society of British Columbia doing, and what caused the CRA to take note?
6: Well, uh, the Islamic Society of BC, as you say, uh, they operate a mosque just outside of Vancouver. And in 2013, the the president of the society, who is also an imam at the mosque, was arrested for a sexual assault that took place inside the the mosque building. And shortly after that, the uh, Canada Revenue Agency sent auditors in to have a look at the books and records of the charity. And what they found, and they um, distributed their findings to the charity last year, uh, was that, one, the, the president, who had been arrested um, for sexual assault, had spent about $127,000 on things like a hot tub, um,
2: jewelry,
6: hair dye and haircuts, all kinds of basically personal uh, shopping that was paid for by the charity. But what they also found was that they believed that the the charity in B.C. was to some extent being controlled or influenced by another very wealthy charity in Qatar in the Persian Gulf. Um, So the uh, the auditors raised these concerns and uh, passed them on to the charity and uh, in May of this year issued a penalty against the charity.
0: So, penalty against the charity, and they find out that the, uh, that the imam at the mosque had spent 127000 and was accused of sexual assault. Was this in CRA investigating, or did somebody turn him in? Do we know?
3: Did some,
6: somebody, uh, there were complaints of the spending at the mosque.
0: Okay. Um, where's the connection with the Qatar Group, the, the Eid Foundation, Which was accused of supporting terror. Where does that, where do they enter the picture? And do we know if the Eid Foundation was engaged with only one mosque in BC?
6: Well, as you may know, there's been a a sort of a long standing issue with Qatar and charities based in Qatar that are suspected of financing extremism around the world, really, or the Middle East in particular. And um, this, uh, one of the charities uh, in Qatar called the Eid Foundation, was found to have a pretty close connection to this one in B.C. They were sending quite a bit of money uh, to this charity near Vancouver. There was mention of uh, sort of cross-directorships where some of the directors of the B.C. charity were in fact uh, residents of Qatar, some of whom were affiliated with the Eid Foundation. In fact, the Eid Foundation even um, at one point selected and paid for the imam to come a Saudi imam to come and uh, preach at the mosque for some time. So there were quite a, a few connections. The, the Eid Foundation, this was, and the reason this was sort of a concern uh, that was raised by the auditors, the Eid Foundation is uh, believed to be part of a group called the Union of Good, which is essentially a Hamas front that was set up by Hamas to channel money from around the world into its uh, its own accounts in Gaza.
0: Were you surprised that the charity's status was not revoked? They were fined, but the status was not revoked, even though they were associated with this organization, accused of having links to Hamas.
6: Well, it certainly makes you ask the question, exactly what does it take to lose your charity status? When yeah. the charity can, uh, when the president can engage in sexual assault and buy a hot tub and be allegedly affiliated with uh, a group connected to Hamas, and still maintain its charity status, you kind of have to wonder what's going on. What we were told by several sources, including the CRA, is that the CRA is taking a new approach to dealing with charities. And in the past, they had one uh, tool for punishing charities, and that was to revoke their status. And in recent years, they've given themselves additional tools like penalties and um, forcing charities to enter into compliance agreements where they, they agree to engage in certain types of behavior, improve their bookkeeping, for example. And so they've apparently taken a more of a educational approach than an enforcement approach, where they see themselves as an agency that's not there to punish charities, but to try and guide them along and bring them into compliance. So it seems to be what happened here. The, the charity assured the CRA that uh, they had they would improve their books and record keeping and oversights and they said that they had gotten rid of the president and so the CRA allowed them to carry on.
0: You also find out in the story that prominent politicians, including the former premier of British Columbia, visited the Islamic center or the mosques. I mean, now that, that's coincidental, I suppose. But uh, it it probably adds to the intrigue factor.
6: It's coincidental, but uh, if you look at the timeline, um, particularly the the local liberal MP um, appeared several times at that place, quite a, up to two and a bit years after the president had been charged with sexual assault. In fact, um, he you know there was a photograph of the two of them together. Uh, long after he'd been charged now the mp said he had he didn't know that uh, he was facing these charges but uh, it was quite well publicized and you have to kind of feel for the poor victim who would be watching her mp standing alongside her abuser
5: yeah
0: very definitely is this over now no
6: i don't think it's over um within the community itself, which has been agitating for some time for the CRA to come and clean up this place, um, they told us they're just they're not satisfied, that uh, they want a clean sweep of the management. Um, the CRA also uh, will be monitoring, I'm sure, to, to make sure that this group is remaining in compliance, uh, whether it's doing the things that it promised it would do. Um, so you know, I think we're probably going to hear more about this.
0: All right. Stuart, thank you very much for the time, and congratulations on all the big stories that you break. Okay, thank you. All the best. Stuart Bell from Global News on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Uh, Boy, I'm surprised. I'm surprised at the poll information that uh, I read this morning, and uh, that came from mainstream research, and it has to do with The mayoral race in the city of Calgary, because in 2014, and I remember this clearly, Nahid Nanshi, the mayor of Calgary, was deemed to be the best mayor in the world. And uh, as I said a couple of minutes ago, it appears, according to Main Street Research polling in Calgary, that Mr. Nanshi may wind up being the best ex-mayor in the world. Things have changed between 2014 and 2017. Keita Maji is the president of Main Street Research, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So right now, if an election were held today, a new mayor, right, Quito? Yeah, if an election were held today, again, all the
7: same caveats apply. It's a snapshot in time. Uh, and, uh, you know, We feel that on Thursday evening, uh, and uh, and 1,000 respondents in, in Calgary told us that they were going to vote 42% for Bill Smith, the, uh, 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 a former uh, PC party president who is running for mayor against Nahid Nenshi, um, and 33% for uh, Nahid Nenshi, um, and just 7% for former councillor Shabot. Uh, Chabot. Um, he's, he's back 9% with just 14% undecided at this point. He, with less than three weeks to go to election day, it's really an uphill battle for him.
0: So that 9% is, is really significant it, in this short period of time between when the poll was taken and the election day.
7: Exactly. And, and with just 14% left undecided, what we noted mm. is that there's really very little accessible vote left to the, the incumbent mayor. We know that he's gone through a number of very tough battles uh, with his council over budgets, over, over different issues in Calgary over the last number of years. And every time there's a battle and, and the mayor makes a decision, uh, you know, that's hurt him. We saw his approvals drop below 60% for the first time in 2015, about a year and a half after the, the what you referenced, the, the, the World's Greatest Mayor uh, survey that was done. Um, and then he's been slipping ever since. And, and earlier this year, he finally dropped below uh, sort of a net negative approval where more people disapproved of the job that he was doing than approved. Did you? Um, sorry, go ahead. And and you know what we're seeing is the effects of prolonged economic downturn across Alberta. Not something that is the mayor's fault. What we what we found is many more people in in Calgary are pessimistic about the economy than are optimistic. Uh, top issues I, I include the you know the number one issue is is property taxes in Calgary right now. Three years ago when we were polling in Calgary, property taxes was the last thing on people's minds. But that was when, you know, a barrel of oil cost $110 and the economy was booming. Today, those issues matter to Calgary voters.
0: So Bill Smith, is he uh, sort of the real voter's choice or is he the uh, default winner, if you will, because he's the past president of the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta? Why, Why Bill Smith?
7: Yeah, I think largely it's 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 just being in the right place, at the right time. Uh, he's, you know, his campaign has been described not by myself but by others as the not uh, Nahid Nanshi candidate, and 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 he's just people's votes have coalesced around him. There is some weakness there. Uh, his approval, uh, sorry, his favorability is only thirty six percent. His unfavorable score is 25%. So he's a, a plus 11. Uh, but Nahed Nenshi is, is the same in terms of favorability, 36%. The only problem is 47% uh, uh, find him unfavorable. So he's a net negative net 11 on, on favorability. So it, it's, it, it could just be that circumstances beyond the mayor's control are... are um, uh, going to mean that he's not going to be reelected for the second time. He's had a really good run. He's been the mayor for since 2010 and um you know but again it's a snapshot in time still almost 3 weeks to go until election day. It's on uh, October 16th. So there there is some chance that this uh, that there will be some movement.
0: Incumbency usually is is worth a couple of points, isn't it? Yeah, and I think
7: uh, I, I think that's certainly why the mayor is where he is. I think you know he's had a lot of battles with council, with individual yeah. councillors, with business in the in the area, uh, the the economic climate that is in place in Alberta as being a resource economy, not so much an effect in in Edmonton that has that is a more government town, but in Calgary that is an industry town, um, that economic downturn has had major impacts on on people's moods and we know that that affects uh, voter intention
0: now is there a message being sent by calgary voters in this poll to premier notley as well
7: yeah i think if if you were to extrapolate these numbers and and you know we we had a poll out uh, or over the summer right after the the, the pcs and the wild rose join showing that the united conservative party would form a mega majority across alberta including pretty strong numbers in calgary it's got to be worrying it's got to be a concern for both rachel notley and probably for justin trudeau uh where the liberals hold two seats in calgary these numbers should be a concern to both rachel notley and justin trudeau
0: Now back to uh, Mayor Nenshi, If you realize that you're sliding, if you know things are not going the way they should be going, and and you know that you've had battles and you know that you haven't had exactly the best coverage and people have been aligning against you, wouldn't you in that uh, in in that I I guess I'm just asking you an imponderable here, but wouldn't you, as the as the mayor, wouldn't you as the person who uh, wants to be reelected, recognize what's going on and put a but a stop to the slide as much as possible. It seems to me that Mayor Nancy either hasn't done that or wasn't able to do it.
7: Well, I think one of the things, and, and this isn't data that's going to be released until Monday, but one of, one of the questions that we did as a follow-up to the voter intentions and favorability was about some of the issues in Calgary, and he's been focusing the last couple of months on the new Calgary arena and a, and a prolonged battle with the Calgary Flames and Gary Bettman, and what we found in our in the poll is that this is not an issue that people really care about. A very small sliver of, of the population care about that. But he's been talking about it, almost being forced to talk about that issue in, in many ways. Um, but the fact that he's focusing on that issue and, and continuing to talk about that issue. Yes, he's won that issue. I, I give him that. I grant him that. But... It's not an issue that a lot of Calgary voters actually care about. In the meantime, since he's been elected mayor, uh, property taxes have increased fivefold, and there's a whole lot of those other economic mm-hmm. issues that combined with the, the, the downturn in the economy as a result of oil prices is, is is really what's driving these numbers.
0: So it's the straw that breaks the camel's back in and of themselves. Uh, one issue at a time, uh, he, could, he could overcome, but... Probably, but uh, given all a number of issues all together, it becomes too weighty, and option and and voters have an option, and maybe some nostalgia.
7: Yeah, and I and I think it's you know death by a thousand cuts is the is the worst kind of. He's he's had all these battles, like I said, with council right. and, and with business in 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 Calgary, uh, and you know this morning when the poll was released, the first thing the campaign did instead of ignoring it and and working harder is they attack the poll and the pollster instead of focusing on the work that they have to do. It's just more indicative of of where the mayor and and his team are at. Um, And uh, I I just find that interesting. I I don't know that
0: there's enough time for him to retool the campaign. Have to stop. Pull this out. You know, have to stop here, but that's spelled P-A-N-I-C, what they did this morning. That's right. Good to talk to you, as always. Thanks very much for the time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Roy. Thanks for having me. Kito Maggi, the uh, president of Main Street Research.
1: The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.